0: Now, make sure that you have your coffee, have your Bible, and your notepad ready to go, because we're about to get started with today's message. Good morning. I want to welcome you. This morning and those who are online as well, if you're visiting with us or newer and you've not filled out an info card, they're in the seat pocket in front of you. If you're watching online, there's a link in the description on YouTube that you can click and fill out an info card that gives us a chance to get to know you and connect you with the church and maybe answer any questions that you have. If you're here with us this morning and you fill out one of those info cards, you can drop it at the table afterwards and we'll have a gift for you there. Let's see, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 39. I have 35 minutes to get through 20 verses, and so I'm going to give you a summary. We'll break it into two sections, but I will admit uh, it's it's been a good summer. The weather has been nice. The weather continues to be nice, and I don't know about you, but um, this week for me was one of drama and distraction, so if you will pray with me, maybe you can help me and we can focus together. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would guide our minds to focus in on your words here or your word here that what you have to say is what would be spoken. Uh, That it wouldn't be opinions of people, but directly from your word, what you have to say to us. I pray that you would make us good ground so that that word could take root and then change the way that uh, we live, the way that we think, and uh, our approach to you especially, so that we could be at peace with you, but also know that... uh, this passage has a strong challenge in it. It's going to make a lot of people uncomfortable, God. And in our, in our discomfort in our relationship with you, uh, help us to remember that when we feel that, it's you changing us. It's you showing us something that we need to hear so that we could live in line with your will. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this passage, we'll break it into, into two sections, verses 19 through 25, as a recap of chapter 9, verse 1, through chapter 10, verse 18. He's going to recap what he's been saying about Jesus' high priesthood for the last chapter and a half. And then the end of the chapter is a strong warning for Christians, and I want you to hear this, this is for Christians though who are willfully sinning against God. Um, I have a different message for you if you're a non-Christian, if you haven't placed faith in Jesus Christ. What happens is you come to a place of spiritual awareness where your eyes are open to your own sickness and your own depravity, your own rebellion against God. You know that you're in need of a savior, and then uh, you hear the gospel. It's preached to you that Jesus Christ died for your sins so that you could be saved from the consequences of that, be justified and made right with God. And then three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, one, to prove that he is is God, and then He is the Messiah. But two, to give you new life. And when you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, and you follow Him as your Lord, risen from the dead, uh, you are saved. You're justified. You're made right with God. And then these verses that I'm going to share with you would apply to your life. But if, if you're if you're not a Christian yet, I, I do want you to hear the gospel this morning that God's love is for you, and that He wants you to be in right relationship with Him. Um, but the, the, the Greek word for exhortation or encouragement, it, it has two things. One, it means to come alongside someone and, and give them the words that they need to hear so that they can be uplifted. Um, somebody is down and they're hurting and we come alongside them and we, we encourage them. The other way that that word is used is it's it's kind of encouragement but with a set of spurs. Um, And so there's kind of a prodding that's going on with God and his word for us to live in a different way. And so I'm going to give you both of those. Let's read the first beginning here, the the, the recap. It says, therefore, brothers and sisters, speaking to Christians, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with the true heart in full assurance of faith and our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our Bodies washed in pure water. We see what Jesus' person and work is doing there. We see the internal transformation that it should be the Christian's normative experience of a true heart, sprinkled clean, evil conscience washed away, our bodies being presented to God as, as acts of worship. And then, white as we go through this are actions that validate Christ like transformation. So that's the beginning. And he goes on, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. So these words are are written to first-century Christians. We don't know who the author is. There's a lot of speculation. The language in this passage really sounds like Paul, but we don't know who wrote the letter. We know that it was written before 70 AD um, because he does not reference the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And In fact, he tells people that they shouldn't go there and offer sacrifices there. So he's offering them a a better way to worship God through what Christ has done and how he has become the once-for-all sacrifice that saves us from our sins. There's no more sacrifices to be offered. When we talk about salvation. He's offering them an understanding of salvation being past, present, and future. That in the past, the penalty of sin was paid for by Jesus, and we are now freed from any consequences of our sin as far as eternity is concerned, and we're justified. The penalty of sin is paid. If you're in Christ, you're justified. You're made right. The power of sin is being overcome in us presently as the Holy Spirit is in us, and we keep in step with him, and we allow him to guide us in line with God's word. Our future glorification is something that we await. We await the fullness of our salvation when the presence of sin is eradicated. You and I, as followers of Jesus, we still have sin within our flesh. When Jesus returns, we'll be given new bodies and a body that does not have sin within it, and so we will have no draw to sin. The world will be cleansed. There'll be no draw to sin in the world that we inhabit, the new heavens and the new earth. The devil will be cast into the lake of fire, and our own sin that is within our flesh will be eradicated and we get a new body, so there's no more presence of sin. The power of sin in the past is taken care of, we're justified. The the, the, the excuse me, the penalty of sin, we're justified. The power of sin in the presence is being overcome by the Holy Spirit inside of us, and the presence of sin is eventually done away with completely in the new heavens and the new earth. So when we talk about salvation, there's three tenses, past, present, future, penalty, power, presence, okay? And so he's talking about how Jesus has brought this about, And so when we talk about the person and work of Jesus, it's his blood that has inaugurated or brought into being a new and living way through the curtain. Within the Old Testament system, there was a curtain that separated the Holy of Holies where God's presence was from the rest of the temple. And only one person got to go in there, the high priest, one day a year. And so there was a very uh, unique, holy, special place and only one person could go in there one day a year. What's revealed to us in Hebrews is that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, we all now have the same level of privilege that the high priest had. You and I enter into the most holy place where God is. We draw near because of the the work of our great high priest, and he's promised he's faithful. He's going to fulfill his future promises, and that that phrase, the day approaching, is saying that when Christ returns, uh, there's something for us to look forward to. Um, we, We really look forward to his return, and so we see the person and work of Jesus, what he has done, and then what he's done is it's caused a divine internal transformation in you and I. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've been given a new heart. Within the scriptures, when we talk about heart, it's talking about the the baseline true desires that each and every one of us have. And before you come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and believe in him, we have a heart that is wicked and depraved and would choose to go against God every time because that's our desire. But when God saves us and makes us new, he takes that old heart of stone out, he puts a new heart of flesh in, and he gives us a new heart true set of desires. We still may sin because sin indwells our flesh, but when we do sin, it's not our desire. Our desire is to have relationship with God and to honor him, and so we've been given this true heart. It's been sprinkled free from an evil conscience. I'm going to talk about conscience more here in a minute, and then our bodies have been washed pure. These are very Jewish ways to talk about how would you be able to enter into the temple and worship God, and what he's saying is one time for all, God has cleansed our heart. David would pray in the Old Testament. He would say, create in me a clean heart, oh God. Us as Christians, we can say, God, you have created a clean heart in me. It's not something that I need you to do, it's something that you've done. Like you've given me a new heart. And so, God, thank you that you've given me a new heart, a new baseline set of desires. And I want what you want. And so, thank you for sprinkling that clean and, and giving us a body that's washed. The idea there is like Paul says in Romans chapter 12, that we would present our bodies to God um, and that, that we would give ourselves to him as a, as a rational way of worshiping him. That In Romans 6, that our members would be used as instruments of righteousness and not as instruments of death. And so our bodies have been washed pure. So this is an internal transformation that has taken place because of Jesus 's work. And so when we talk about conscience, the, in English we break this word apart. We would say conscious and consciousness. Conscience is an inner feeling or voice viewed as acting as a guide for rightness and wrongness of one's behavior. Consciousness is a state of being awake and aware of one's surroundings. So in English, we separate these words. We can say you're awake, you're aware, you know what's going on around you, your conscience uh, conscious, excuse me your conscience. Is is inside of you, you're, you're going, that's wrong, I know it's wrong, or that's right, I know it's right. And what he's saying is that we've been given the evil one that we used to have that couldn't define what was right and what was wrong, uh, has been replaced. In the Greek, they just use one word, and it was, uh, that word was synesis, and it's an awareness of anything, but it's a soul distinguishing between what is morally good and bad, prompting one to do the former and shun the latter condemning or excuse me commending one and condemning the other the use uh, used by biblical writers and it's some 39 times in the new testament to communicate a fundamental transformational difference between those who are in Christ and those who are not so before you came to follow Jesus Christ as your lord and savior you were not conscious to what was going on around you spiritually in fact, the, the, the scriptures say that the eyes of the unbelieving, the, the mind of the unbelieving has been darkened so that it cannot perceive what is right. And so we actually need the spirit of God to enter into our lives and, and wake us up. If you want a real good definition of woke, here it is. The real good definition of woke is that the spirit of God jumps into your life and he causes you to see that the spiritual forces that are around you are real and that they're leading people in a rebellion against him that is satanic in nature and causing you you to become an instrument of darkness that then furthers the rebellion, and so you become awake to this. Oh, my goodness. I am spiritually dead. I'm chained to evil. I need to break away from it. Who will free me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. Jesus Christ, who brings into existence that which, doesn't, uh, that which isn't around, he, he calls it to life, and he does the same thing for me. That same spirit lives in me and causes me to be awake and alive. Right? And so I am awake and alive, not because I woke myself up, but because the Spirit of God, through the Word of God and the Gospel of God, has transformed me into a new creation of God pretty cool. And then we have a conscience that's given to us, and so the way that we used to determine right and wrong was dependent upon our own desires and our cultural surroundings. Truth was relative to us, but when you meet God, truth isn't relative anymore. Truth is concrete. Truth is real. Truth is eternal. God is timeless. So is what he teaches about wrong and right, and so I used to think maybe that things were relative, and it was up for me to determine what right and wrong was. At least, maybe I didn't totally, I wouldn't say I believed it, but I lived like it, and then I God. And then I met him, and he woke me up and he showed me my need. And I've, I've Submitted myself to his lordship, and now I'm fighting a battle against the spiritual forces of darkness. I understand that the world around me is under the thumb of God, that he is the, or under the thumb of Satan. He is the little g God of this world. And so the political systems and the philosophies of the world, I I understand that they're not going to line up with God most of the time. They're going to have a little bit of truth because the best lies do, but they're not going to be the total truth. And so I'm not going to be duped by that stuff because I'm awake, I'm aware, I know what God is saying to me. And he's saying this is what God has done for you if you're a follower of Jesus. The bad news is is if you're not a follower of Jesus, you don't really know what's going on. And he would like to wake you up. And he'd like to give you the answers to the questions that you're searching for. He'd like to be the answers, the answer to the questions you're asking. And so I encourage you to follow Jesus. I encourage all of us to follow Jesus. This is what he's done for us. And if he's done this for you, we should have actions that validate Christ-like transformation. One of the actions that we should have is boldness to approach God through the blood of Jesus You should have boldness about your relationship with God if you're in Jesus Christ because he has justified you once for all God's spirit indwells you right now to overcome sin and you know that there's a future laid up for you in heaven That nobody could take away from you, but it's so much greater than what we have right now You 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 love God you want God He's your father and you're constantly seeking relationship with him not in fear But with boldness But there is some fear, and I'll explain that in a moment. There is a right fear of God but we draw near with full assurance of faith and we hold on to our confession of hope without wavering. We provoke each other to love and good works. We don't neglect gathering together. He says that's the practice of some, but it won't be the practice of you. If following God is important to you, you'll be a part of a local congregation. You'll study God's word, You'll worship together. You use your spiritual gifts to bless other people. You'll evangelize the lost. You'll care for the needy. These things will start to love and good works will flow out of you and you'll be encouraging one another. So he says that's the recap. Jesus is worthy. You are a new creation. Hold fast and be who God has made you. That's that's kind of the recap there. And here's the part that's going to make a lot of us uncomfortable. The fourth warning against deliberate sin. He says, for if we deliberately go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. What does that mean? There's, There's no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire about to consume the adversaries. Anyone who disagreed with the law of Moses died without mercy based upon the testimony of two or three witnesses. Here's his line of thought here. In the Old Testament, there were sacrifices for many things. If you sinned, there were sacrifices specific. If you committed murder, if you committed adultery, if you raped someone, if you performed one of these types of acts, there was no sacrifice for sin, you were taken outside the city and put to death. You became the sacrifice. And so he's saying that if you deliberately sin against God after having the knowledge of the truth, there's no longer a sacrifice but an expectation of judgment and you should take sinning against God deliberately as serious as murder. Like if you're deliberately sinning against God right now and you're pushing him away as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ, and you don't want to listen to his word and you're not letting him have influence in your life and you say he's your Lord but you don't follow him, he says that's a very dangerous place to be and deliberate sin against God is as serious as murder. Don't do it. Okay, don't do it. Then he goes on, he says, how much worse do you think one will deserve who has trampled on the son of God, who has regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and who has insulted the spirit of grace. Whoa. He's talking to the Hebrew Christians in the first century and he's saying, if you go back to Judaism after having the truth of who Jesus is and you go back to what's culturally convenient as far as your worship is concerned, you're going to be trampling the son of God, stepping on his face. You're going to be profaning the blood of the covenant and you're insulting the Holy Spirit if you do that. You go back to Judaism after following Jesus because that's what you're doing and you you should expect punishment. And now he's saying to you and I, if you give in to the cultural whims of our society and you don't stand up for the name of Christ and you fall for this relativism baloney and you go for all this nonsense that's happening in our world and you go to what's culturally convenient to worship God, you might as well trample on the son of God, profane the blood of the covenant and insult the spirit of grace. If you think that God is someone that you can control and put in a box, if you think that you can just do what's culturally convenient, I don't care if that's the left side of the aisle or the right side of the aisle, I don't care what spectrum you're on, if you think you can follow those things as God instead of Jesus Christ, look out. Four, we know that the one who said, Vengeance belongs to me, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge who? His people. His people. Not those who are far off, not those who have yet to have been brought near. His people, he will judge them. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. What's he saying? He says this is is a warning to Christians. If a believer lives in a way that deliberately goes against God and his ways, they should expect temporal judgment from God. The eternal judgment consequences of your sin are paid. You are justified. You cannot lose your salvation because you didn't earn it in the first place. His blood is what justifies you. But right now you can live in a way that rejects the Holy Spirit, that insults his voice and doesn't allow him to speak to you. You can reject the word of God and go with what's culturally convenient. And if you do this, you should expect temporal judgment from God. He's going to correct you. This shows that the, the fear of God is more than just respect and reverence. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And if you think this principle is shocking, go to Acts chapter 5 and read about Ananias and Sapphira. They, they lie to the Holy Spirit. They sin against him. And what does God do? He pulls them off the earth. That's enough. And I want to let you think about that for a second. That when I fear God, it's not just awe and reverence. It's he is the judge of everything. And were I, as a follower of Jesus Christ, to reject his standards and his ways and instead go with what's easy in the world around me, and I do it continually in a way that dishonors him and fights against his kingdom, he might take me off this place. Now imagine it's it's World War II and you're fighting for the United States and you're in Germany. And you meet a German and next thing you know, you kind of like what he has to say. And the next thing you know, you're kind of buying into his way of life and, and you're kind of buying into the, the ideology that's behind it. And you leave and you, you start actually giving information to the German army, and you start actually, you, you, you actually become someone that's fighting against the United States. What should the United States do with you? Remove you. And essentially that's what's being said here. You are in a spiritual battle. You're in a spiritual battle and you are fighting for the kingdom of heaven against the forces of darkness, and when you go against the cross and you go against the word of God and you give in to what's culturally convenient and you continue to shun the word of God and not let the Holy Spirit's voice in your life, you're fighting for the enemy all of a sudden. You should expect temporal judgment. Though you'll be saved as though through fire, You should expect temporal judgment. And so the fear of the Lord isn't just awe and reverence. It's, wow, if I were to dishonor him completely in a way that fights against his kingdom and against his gospel for a long period of time, he he might step in and do something I don't want. Remember the early days. If this is you, If you're tempted to give in to what's culturally convenient, if you're tempted to give in to the world, the flesh, and the devil, the patterns of your flesh and the sin that's there, you're tempted to give in to the philosophies and the systems that are around us rather than trusting in God. Remember the early days when you had been enlightened. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to taunts and afflictions. At other times, you were companions of those who were treated that way. For you sympathized with the prisoners and accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions because you know that you yourselves have a better and enduring possession. What's he saying? He's saying, I know what's going on in the Roman world around you. I know that if you follow Jesus and you're serious about it, you, you used to be a part of a trade guild, and you were, a, you, were, you were in construction, or you were a merchant, or you were a, a tradesman, and, and you were part of a trade guild. And they found out that you were a follower of Jesus, and because of that, they kicked you out of the trade guild, and you lost your job, and you lost your way of making money. Maybe it didn't happen to you, but maybe it happened to one of your friends. They lost their their possessions and they they had them confiscated from them and they they weren't able to work their job anymore, but you stuck with them and you endured because you were enlightened, you were awake, and you were aware, and you knew that the spiritual consequences of giving in were way bigger than losing some possessions. So you kept going. How about this? You're on your college campus. And you know that if your social media account looks like something that follows Jesus, you're gonna catch some flack for it. You know that if you carried a Bible on that college campus, there's gonna be people that call you ignorant for believing what's in it. You know that if you stood up for Christ in that situation, that you're gonna take some flack for it. And you might even get a lower grade because of it. I had a professor that did that an English professor, I wrote a paper on evolution and creationism and I sided with creationism and I had all these reasons why I did and the paper was well written and, and uh, edited by multiple people and had lots of sources and I turned it in and I expected a good grade. I got a C minus. My next paper, I said, you know what, I'll compare Dave Matthews Band and Pearl Jam. <laughs> he loved it, ate it up, same paper, same type of research, same type of writing, A plus. What I learned was that man didn't want what was, he didn't want to actually let me express myself. He, he didn't want to teach me how to think, he wanted to teach me what to think. And so I had to reject that and push back against it. I had another professor that he, he stands up and he's, one class he's talking about how the Old Testament is useful for understanding the, the history of the Jewish people. And the next class he gets up and he tells us how the Bible can't be trusted because there's miracles in it. I said, hold on, you're logically inconsistent. I need you to explain this to me. And he stammered and stuttered and changed the subject. After the class, I'm walking out, and he says, hold on just a second, I wanna to talk to you. So I talk to him, and what's up? And he says, maybe this isn't the right university for you. Maybe you belong at one of those universities where your faith won't be challenged. And I said, well, my scholarship's here. So as long as you're logically consistent, we won't have any problems. But if you are logically inconsistent, I'm gonna ask you questions. I had another class where they're, you know, it says who were treated the same way. Here, I had another class where a professor was doing the same thing, and there was a young lady a couple rows behind me that was a Christian as well. And and the professor's talking about Christianity, and I could tell his goal was to get a rise out of anyone in the room that was a Christian. Well, she obliged, and she got so upset with him, and and what he he, she, he got exactly what she or he got exactly what he was looking for with this rise out of the student to demonstrate: see if you're a Christian, you really don't have love you really don't have patience, you really don't have peace. And so she turned red and got upset, and I I grabbed her afterwards, and I don't remember what her name is, but we talked and we said, I said, said, he's going to probably do this again, and if he does, we're on the same side. But let's not give him the rise he's looking for. But instead, like Christ, when, when he went to the cross and he was insulted, he didn't insult in return. When he was mocked, he didn't revile. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. And so we're not gonna do that. But also like Jesus in John chapter 18, when he got punched in the face, he looked at the guard and he said, if I've spoken wrongly, tell me what I did. But if I haven't, why do you strike me? So I'm gonna call out the inconsistency and I'm gonna point out the places where you're wrong. And I'm gonna do it with love and with grace and without mockery or insults. But what I'm not going to do is cower in the corner. Uh, We got to see Kirk Cameron last, uh, on Friday night, and one of the things he said really struck with me. He said, Christians have a tendency to fall into two camps, reporters and reformers. What a reporter would have done with that classroom is they'd have stayed silent, they'd have been kind of upset with the situation, and they'd have gone home or to their church, and they'd have whined about it to a bunch of people. Well, he said this, and he did that, and wouldn't it be great when Jesus comes back and we get out of this terrible place? reporter. Reformers, what they would do with that situation is they would dig in. And they'd say, no, I'm going to expose this guy to the gospel, one, through how I live and how I speak and how I talk to him. But two, by pointing out what he believes is wrong. I'm going to point out what this guy believes is wrong. And maybe, just maybe, this professor is exposed to the gospel and he comes to a place of faith. Next thing we know, the university is being transformed because now we have professors who are following Jesus instead of persecuting him. And apply that across the board, your workplace. They tell you to be quiet, not gonna happen. Well, you might lose your job, you might get kicked out of the trade guild, you might lose some of your possessions, don't care. I have a better reward waiting me than a paycheck that shows up every other Friday. Because I'm living for something that's eternal, not something that is temporal. And if I really wanted to, who am I I in fear of here? Am I in fear of the political systems that exist and that my boss might get upset? Or am I living in fear of God, that if I reject him and don't live for him and don't move his kingdom forward, that I'm actually putting myself in a position where I might receive temporal judgment? At the very least, I'm giving up some of my eternal reward? Why would I do that? So don't throw away your confidence, which is a great reward for you need endurance, so that after you have done God's will, you may receive what is promised. Listen to that. After you have done God's will, you may receive what is promised. You are saved by grace. You are, you are justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we are made new by grace and the Holy Spirit living inside of us. But if you don't walk in faith, you won't grow. If you don't keep in step with the Holy Spirit and abide with what the words of Christ are within the scriptures and allow the Holy Spirit to grow you and you're not a part of a local congregation and you're not being grown by God's word, you will be spiritually stagnant and you're an easy target for the evil one. But if you do God's will, you receive what's promised. Transformation in the life today. Reward in the life to come. And here's another thing, we have said this before, but heaven is not communism perfected. We're not gonna get there and all have the same thing. We'll all be there, and there'll be a marriage supper of the Lamb where he talks to us about how we lived our lives and rewards us for our good deeds, but not everybody's getting the same reward, Right? The person who lives in opposition to the faith and gives his life to, to drugs and gives his life to alcohol and gives his life to the world around him and gives his life to materialism and gives his life to, to climbing the corporate ladder and gives his life, like if you give your life to temporal things, you only get temporal rewards. But if you give your life to eternal things, you get eternal reward. And then he says in verse 37, for yet in a very little while, the coming one, talking about Christ's return, will come and not delay. And he says, but this, but while you're there, while you're waiting for his return, but my righteous one will live by faith. But if he draws back, I have no pleasure in him. (whistles) My righteous one will live by faith. My righteous one will trust the word of God. God's righteous one will live by the power of the Holy Spirit inside of him. The righteous one will, will seek God's will, will seek God's face, will have relationship with God through his son. But if he draws back, I have no pleasure in him. But we are not those who draw back, are we? We're not gonna draw back and be destroyed. We're not gonna draw back and forfeit our reward. We're not gonna draw back and allow the, 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 the darkness that exists in our life to be stronger than the light, are we? That's what he's saying. Are are we? We're not. But those we are those who have faith and are saved. So if you're struggling with your faith and you're kind of giving in to maybe the impulses of your flesh or the philosophies of the world around you, you're experiencing spiritual doubt or persecution. He says, look back and remember the beginning with God. That's often just what you need to keep pressing forward. Do you remember who you used to be and how God transformed you? Do you remember how he blessed you? Do you remember how you knew you were secure? Do you remember how the the, the blood of Jesus in some way it washed over you and you knew you were forgiven and free? and his resurrection to life, uh, it, it became part of who you are, and all of a sudden you were spiritually awake and you saw the world around you spiritually for what it is and you were being transformed from the inside out as you kept in step with the Holy Spirit. But something came along and caused you to stumble. You had a traumatic moment in your life and instead of digging further into Jesus, you turned to something that numbed you. You you, you had a relationship that went south and instead of digging into Jesus, you. You got so focused on the mistakes that people can make. and you made, you made the actions of people an idol in your life rather than following Jesus. Maybe it's something different for you. Will you remember what Christ has done for you and keep pressing forward? Hold fast to your confession of faith. And then look forward, anticipating eternal reward often overshadows temporal losses. Look, if you're going to stand up for Jesus in our nation right now and you're really going to live for him and you're really going to make it known that you're a follower of Jesus Christ and that the gospel is the only way to be saved and that anybody who says otherwise really doesn't know what they're talking about because they're spiritually blind and they don't know what truth is and in order to get them to see truth, you're going to have to kind of shine a light in their eyes. Well, the first time you wake up in the morning, somebody turns on the lights, you go full bore and you're like, whoa. You might have a couple reactions like that where you turn the lights on in somebody's life and they go, whoa, and they get defensive. And when you have these conversations with people, you're having a spiritual conversation about things that truly matter, and someone gets offended, I'm gonna tell you probably what most people will do. They will attack you. They will come at you. And that's all right. Because Jesus didn't promise that we would have ease in this life. He promised that we would have persecution. And so when they come at you, all right, that's okay. But I'm not going to insult in return. I'm not going to revile back. I'm actually going to say, hey, 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 hey. Don't attack me. I mean, if I've said something wrong and I've offended you, tell me what that is. But, but if you just have a problem with the gospel, well, tell me Why? Be a good listener. Be compassionate. We don't always have to turn the lights on full bore. You can slowly turn the light on for people. <laughs> but don't back down. Hold fast because Jesus is worthy. Don't give in to the world, the flesh, or the devil. Fear God. Disrespecting him is a big deal. And maybe, maybe that's something you're just getting for the first time. The, the fear of God is awe and reverence, but it's more than that. It's the idea that if I live a life that is continually sinful and rebellious, God is going to step in and correct me and I probably won't like how he does it. Be who God has made you and fight the good fight. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that this message would be true for us as individual Christians, that we would see you as worthy, because you are. We're just acknowledging the truth of what, who you are and what you've done. You, you are the God that created everything, the, the oceans, the fish, the birds, the, uh, the animals, the plants, the stars, the universe, you, me. And I've rebelled against you and I've fought against you and I was spiritually blind and my eyes were dark to what was truly going along, al- around. But you stepped into my life and you showed me who you are. You caused me to be spiritually awake as your gospel was presented to me, and the good news of your death on my behalf to justify me and take away the penalty of sin, your resurrection from the dead to give me new life, and your Spirit to indwell me so that I could I could live a life that honors and pleases you. Now I lack nothing spiritually because you've given me everything. And God, how I long for you to return, for Jesus to come back. But in the meantime, I'm not here to be a crybaby. I'm here to take ground. And ultimately, I can't defeat every evil that exists within this world, but through your power and with your spirit inside of me, I can take care of the ones that are inside of my family and my life and my church and my city and my, my state and my nation should you provide me with the platform to do so. And so we don't cower and hide, but we press forward in the gospel. And Father, I pray this morning that somebody was encountered with your truth and your love and they surrender and they follow you as their Lord and Savior. God, I thank you for these families that are about to take the stage, uh, committing to raise their children to know Jesus as Lord, to live by biblical principles, to be people of grace and compassion and love and truth that never backs down. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.